You're listening to the Stefan Levera podcast, interviews with the best and brightest in Bitcoin and Austrian economics. Listen in as I interview some of the sharpest minds, ranging from business leaders, software developers, investors, and analysts. Hey guys, it is your host, Stefan Levera, and today my guest is Alex Svetsky. Alex is the CEO of Amber, an Australian Bitcoin business. They are a digital currency exchange, wallet, and micro-investment app. And he's also a technology entrepreneur, having previously built several businesses. And he has been featured in The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald, which for my international listeners are some of the big newspapers here in Australia. Alex has also written a number of nice pieces on sites such as Hacker Noon. And I recently actually met Alex at a Jimmy Song Bitcoin carnivory dinner when he was down here in Sydney. So, um, yeah, I had the chance to meet Alex and I thought it'd be great to get him on for an episode. So, Alex, first of all, welcome to the show. Dude, thank you for that, um, for that intro. Awesome. <laughs> Let's, as we always do with these Bitcoin podcasts, we love to start with your story in Bitcoin. What brought you here? Oh, Jesus. Um, mate, classic heard about Bitcoin in the early days, I think through, I can't now remember whether it was Max Kaiser or someone like that because I was one of the, um, the tinfoil hat gold silver bugs um back in the day um and i'm sure a lot of us sort of got into it from that sort of um angle in the early days at least sort of viewing it as something else and to be honest though i I didn't actually get involved at that stage i I heard about it i was like oh yeah i I didn't really understand the concept um I, i didn't i didn't read the white paper i didn't even bother to spend any time sort of playing discovery or anything i ended up going down the the rabbit hole with other you know quote-unquote traditional tech businesses so built some software companies in sort of payroll automation and recruitment automation the the recruitment one particularly was heavily involved with uh, psychology behavioral science and all that just understanding human beings better and being able to build an algorithm that'll be able to place them better and all that sort of stuff so i sort of spent the, the few years after the first time I'd heard about Bitcoin going down that sort of path. And um, I stepped down as CEO of the previous company I recruit in um, uh, 2016. And part of the reason I'd stepped down was, one, that the culture was sort of moving away from where I wanted it to. But at the same time, earlier in 2016, I, I'd, I read an article, I read uh, – uh, now I'm forgetting his bloody the blog's name unenumerated I think it is um, uh, Nick Zabo's blog yeah yeah that's right so I, I read a blog there and I was like hmm maybe maybe there's something more here and it was at around that time I think Trump had just gotten into presidency again I had op- reopened my trading account I was like okay maybe it's time to sort of get involved in money markets again and you know along the way started reading a bit about Bitcoin again started slowly going down the rabbit hole. And it was sort of at the end of 2016 that I really thought, all right, this is this is the next chapter for me, and you know, jump back in, and here I am today. I think 2017 was a crazy year. Um, I, I I mean, I think a lot of us also got caught up in the hype. Um, you know, earlier on in the year, I was like, holy crap, look at this ICO thing, um, look at Ethereum, look at all this. Um, at one stage, I was even mining Ethereum. There was a lot happening and I, yeah. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. So before we move on, what was it about Bitcoin that made made it stick out to you? Man, f- 
first of all, there's I'm a contrarian at heart. You know, when I've whenever I've traded markets, I've always been on the short side. Like everything I do is contrarian. Like so, for example, over New Year's and the Christmas holiday break, that's generally when I fast. Um, most people eat. <laughs> um, you know, I go to sleep early on New Year's. I don't care about this. I always do the opposite. And for me, Bitcoin seemed like this really interesting contrarian bet. The more the more I sort of delved into it. Um, so that was the sort of the, the first allure for me. Um, you know, ha- having been a previous gold sort of silver person as well, I understood, you know, the, the ideas around Austrian economics and all of this sort of hard money concepts, um, stock to flow ratios and all this sort of stuff. So, so I understood that um, inherently. So, so that sort of came after the contrarian piece. Um, then the piece that sort of tied it off for me was this concept of how at a mass scale, we can achieve uh, social consensus. So I've always been a big reader and a big, you know, student of anthropology of how societies evolved. Um, you know, I was one of the first people to sort of run around, tell everyone to download or to listen to um, uh, Yuval Harari's book *Sapiens*. Um, and what, what I what I saw in Bitcoin was this grassroots. Uh, movement, not so much a technology, but this idea that we can agree on something or collaborate or cooperate on something, which is essentially what separates humans from every other species on the face of the planet is our ability to cooperate in numbers and with people we don't know intimately. And it was this new method of cooperation and money being the ultimate tool of cooperation or the ultimate tool of, um, you know, social consensus. you know, as as I delved into it more, that was the thing that sort of really hooked me and drew me in further. Um, so, you know, everything else obviously still stands, but just this this study of, hey, we've got a new way for us as a species to cooperate, to collaborate, to communicate, to uh, transfer value, to do all that sort of stuff. I find that extremely, extremely fascinating. Yeah, exactly. I think uh, I have uh, some similar views there, especially when you think about articles, and this is a very classic one, which is Nick Zabo's uh, Money, Blockchains and Social Scalability. I'm sure that one was quite influential for you, wasn't it? Um, believe it or not, I actually haven't read that one yet. <laughs> oh, really? I'm very surprised by that. because uh, uh, I, I should definitely read it. Dude, I've got this um, uh, to-do list on my on my on my phone which is articles to read so that one is actually on there along with another 86 of them that i haven't caught up with yet (laughs) ah there's never enough time okay so let's talk a little bit about the last year or two we've had this insane ico craze and actually one of the articles you recently wrote which is titled a world full of blind excesses talk a little bit about that well um geez where do i start on that (sighs) a world full of blind excesses i mean I wrote that when I was – there was a couple of things that triggered me actually when I wrote that and, and it's related to the crypto space. It's related to the world in general um, and one of them was the whole thing about Kylie Jenner being a self-made billionaire. I was like, this is ridiculous. Um, the other thing that triggered it for me was people complaining about you know bloody Donald Trump and everything that he does, um, and you know, everyone's just lost their damn minds and just complaining about everything. And then looking at that, looking at the crypto sort of space uh, in the lens of just the world gone mad, that we've got nothing better to do but to complain about everything and to make everything bigger than it is, and building 
you know, flaky shit on top of flaky shit. And for me, the ICO craze, like I got swept up in it in the beginning. I thought, holy crap, it's a new way to raise money. You know, this is going to change the way, you know, the, the whole narrative that was around it, right? It was going to change the way people raise capital and, you know, everyone's getting involved. And I bought into the narrative initially. I was like, holy shit, this is amazing. But then I, I remember what what changed it for me was I started seeing all of these crazy ass ideas. And I, I'd studied a little bit of the the dot-com sort of boom-bust cycle. And when I looked at that and I thought, holy crap, there's got to be similarities here, except this seems extraordinarily more stupid. So I sat down and I took a weekend out and I read 20 white papers. And having been involved in tech before and running proper businesses and raising capital through sophisticated investors, through angel investors, through VCs, through all of that sort of stuff, Reading the white paper, I thought, holy crap, not not only did by the end of the weekend, I felt like I'd lost, you know, 20 points of IQ. <laughs> I couldn't fathom how people were raising that much money on a piece of, can, I don't know if I can swear here, but a piece of crap. Yeah, yeah, go for it. Um, a piece of shit then, <laughs> you know, concept, which the, the, the grammar wasn't even correct. The ideas were complete fluff. There was no business model, no concept, no nothing. And it was insane. And I sat there reading this stuff thinking, all right, the world's gone absolutely fucking mad and this is this is an example of people don't know where to put their money anymore. They don't know what to do with it. Everything's overinflated. Um, we've been running around and we've reached the peak of, you know, human stupidity where we've decided to create, you know, drone-powered AI blockchains that wash your clothes and make money for you in the middle of the night without you having to do anything and god knows what other fucking ridiculousness was coming out there and man uh, looking at it it's just it's an example of when people say oh you know the, the world's gone mad in terms of political correctness where everyone's now getting offended by friends and getting offended by whatever other old tv show from the 90s and all this sort of stuff i i, I say that this is all a subset of uh, capital excess in the world where people no longer have real problems to worry about. They have these superficial, flaky, surface level problems and crap to deal with that they they end up creating more and more of that shit. And, you know, the ICO craze was an example of that in um, applied to technology and applied to just blind zero substance ideologies that, um, occur at periods of time in society where we've um we've overinflated whether it's expectations whether it's capital whether it's um, assets whether it's anything it's just we live in a world that's been completely inflated in every way shape or form um and i mean that that was the premise of the article and you know if anyone wants to look at it i just go on a massive rant and i pick out 50 things which i think are completely insane um i'm looking at it now like you know property porn shows and you know everyone's a startup person now and you know everyone's also apparently an investor now you know stay-at-home traders yeah let's let's dig into some of these i think um definitely around this whole ico craze we saw this whole idea of everyone's being a fund manager now do you want to talk a little bit about what you saw during that 2017 crazy ico run well people people who've never been in markets before people who don't understand anything 
about economics or fund, any fundamentals about markets or companies or, um, you know, how money functions and how society functions or anything all of a sudden became, you know, fund managers because they tripped over and either fell on top of Bitcoin or fell on top of Ethereum or popped their money into some bullshit shit coin that went up 10,000% because it could. Um, you know, these people all of a sudden became fund managers because their track record was six months long or 12 months long and they made 10,000% return. And in a world where capital is looking for somewhere to make a better yield because everything is skyrocketing like crazy, it's going to go to, hey, look, there's this new stupid area which is making you know tens of thousands of percent. We'll go into there and then all of these idiots who shouldn't be anywhere near money or anywhere near funds raised money from people looking to get you know, a better alpha um, somewhere else. And I mean, it was like, we, we will never uh, until the next, you know, dot-com type or ICO type bubble comes along. And maybe that's going to be another 10 or 20 years. I don't know. But I, I don't think um, we're going to see, like pe- people keep talking about what the next wave of crypto is going to be. It's not going to be like this ICO round unless unless we have, um, some type of new, you know, similar type asset class that's created that's not tied to the underlying asset where you can completely overinflate it. I don't know. Maybe I could be wrong, but I mean, it was it was nuts. I don't really know what else to say there, man. Yeah. Like, there's most of these fund managers are not fund managers. They're a bunch of kids who got lucky or a bunch of idiots who think they know what they're doing. So they're all and, – and I mean how many of them are under? Like the, most of them are under, right? I think there's only like a couple of the fund managers that are still up after all of this, after the bloodbath. And they think, you know, it's not going to get worse. Oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, yeah a couple of thoughts there. So one thing people are saying now, and I don't I don't know the truth of this, is, all, is this whole idea of STOs and is are STOs going to be the new ICOs? Do you have any thoughts on that? the security uh, token offering? I I was on a panel with um, a guy called Kevin O'Hara a couple months ago and it was just when – it was it was in July, right? And it was when people were first starting to feel the burn of, you know, ICOs crashing and everything coming down and they were like, oh, you know what? ICOs are stupid. So the, the narrative started to change then, right? So all these idiots who'd previously been involved in ICOs were now sort of starting to say, oh, look, well, we're not doing an ICO. We're doing an STO. And I'm sort of sitting there thinking, I was on the panel, I'm like, why the fuck are you doing an STO? Why do you need extra liquidity at your stage um, in the business? So I've I've got a couple issues with this whole STO thing. And so if we we break them up into buckets, number one is the liquidity problem. I don't think people understand liquidity well enough. When you're an early stage company, there's a reason why companies like Uber, Airbnb, and all this sort of shit um, remained private for as long as they possibly can is because they need to build, innovate, and play the fucking long game and not bring liquidity into an entity or into an organization before it's needed. Um, because the problem with liquidity is that, and this, this is exacerbated in markets where you've got information asymmetry, is that liquidity is a double-edged sword. If you are a small business that decides to go somehow, let's assume that they figure out how to make STOs practical. Let's say you're a small business and you go uh, create liquidity in the stock in your company and you sell it out. You, uh, in a small business or a small organization, you're so busy fucking around running the company, hiring staff, firing staff, losing people. It's fucking chaos in the early days. I don't give a shit what anybody says. 
your ability to report on what's actually going on and being able to report honestly would send the price of your tokens you know up and down on a daily basis so much so that you wouldn't be able to run the actual company effectively you'd lose your fucking mind number 1 number 2 the average small business or small organization and when i say small i mean anyone from you know really 500 employees down um can't uh can't deliver or execute on the uh the compliance and that's required in order to be what's effectively what an STO represents is a you know, a listed company in effect. Like you know, f- f- in order to give the information out there to the public to make decisions that can value the token that is you know tied to the security and you know whether it's your company, whether it's equity or whatever they've done. So, so you, you've got all of these input problems. That means the perception of the value is going to be so distorted by the market and then further exacerbate the information asymmetry, um, therefore further compound the problem of liquidity in that sort of market. So, so I think that is one area where it's a complete disaster. And number two is that it's not solving the underlying problem of allowing more people. So I, I like the, the, the narrative of the ICOs was that anybody can invest in early stage companies. Now, that's a nice narrative, but just because you've created an STO, so let's say, again, we've solved the problem, we've somehow created an STO, non-sophisticated investors it can't, still can't invest in this um, early stage or you know, pre-seed or seed stage companies anyway, because, and depending on obviously the jurisdiction that you're in, but it's very difficult to invest in these companies from a legislative um, and compliance standpoint. So where the innovation needs to happen is not in, you know, digitizing or tokenizing the security in you know companies that are too early to go and list effectively. Is we need to change the laws around sophisticated investors and all that sort of stuff. So that was sort of the point that I bring up at the um, when I was a panelist over at that uh, crypto investment summit in um, in Sydney was that. The problem we need to solve there is more a legislative access plot problem than it is a technological problem. The technological piece we we've got, I mean that would be probably the third pillar or the third area that I think STOs have a real problem is that what are we actually doing? Are we creating synthetic tokens that represent equity um, or you know some other right or debt or obligation in a company, or are we actually going to digitize a corporate constitution? Break that up. Um, turn you know what's currently listed on an ASIC register, for example. You know the shares that are listed on an ASIC register. We're we going to transform those into some form of token that people can then share, swap, and trade. You know, so so I think there's so much gray area, and there's a lot of people running around thinking that they've solved it, but they're not really thinking deeply, particularly on the liquidity problem. I think the liquidity and the information asymmetry is going to be a major issue, um, and that's just going to all we're going to do is create bubbles in areas that we don't need them. Um, then the um, the technical problem, and then you've got the legal problem. So I don't know. I, I think it's a very messy area. Although in saying that, I think there's going to be progress made towards uh, making the process of creating liquidity in businesses that require the liquidity and have the capacity and capability to uh, you know report and remain compliant. I think it's going to potentially make it easier for them to effectively list but anyway that, that's that's my long answer on STOs. yeah no i i think uh there's some very you know great insights that you've offered there let's unpack that liquidity problem a little bit because some of the problem with that is essentially that 
these tokens, when they first issue, there might be a fair amount of liquidity for people who want to buy in. But then six months down the line, two years down the line, what kind of liquidity will there be? Um, when you say, okay, so where, where are you referring to as the source of liquidity in this, in this question? I'm referring here more to things like buy, the amount of buy support. How many people are there who actually want to hold that token? Yeah, well, we don't know exactly. So th- this is the problem. So the reason why, uh, for example, BHP is listed on the Australian stock exchange and not the you know national stock exchange or some other alternative stock exchange is because the, the liquidity. See, think things like liquidity work best when you've got um, networks or marketplaces that. A large that, that this is why Uber, for example, works much better than I don't know Go Catch or whatever one of the other smaller competitors are because they've got liquidity of drivers and liquidity of riders. So it's it's almost like buyers and sellers, right? So you know it, it's BHP is listed on one of these because of that you know buy sell side liquidity, but they can also list enough shares or enough stock because they're a high valued company. Now, if you're a extremely low valued business that's you know small that's looking to get some cheap capital by somehow securitizing your tokens and listing them somewhere first of all you need to worry about who the hell is going to find you how the hell are you going to get enough information out there for people to actually have enough context to be able to you know buy your stock or support your stock and that sort of translating into and a market building around your company or around your um, entity. So it's, I think a lot more thought needs to be um, going into this. Now, if we can't, so, so if we assume that those challenges are real, what's all this STO thing is going to represent is probably some sort of layer that sits just beneath where traditional markets public markets sit at the moment right so it, this sto thing might actually be reserved for businesses that have done a seed a series a a series b they might not want to go public on a market the size of the asx or say the nasdaq or something like that um they might not want to go to the russell or the you know national stock exchange for example in australia they might want to go to something intermediate that um that is run by a more sort of private smaller scale exchange and that might give them access to some sort of liquidity. But again, that kind of company is not going to be your average, you know, figured it out last week startup that wrote a white paper and is going to raise all this capital overnight. You know, it's going to be very different um, to do an STO. Um, And I just think the analogies that people draw between the ICO craze and the STO craze are two completely different things. Um, And it's, yeah, it's, it's not going to be, as free, open, liquid, and uh, you know, to the moon as people are imagining, um, it's going to be you know a lot more complex. Um, and there's going to be, if it's going to function, the barrier to entry is going to be a hell of a lot higher. Which by default is going to mean that less companies get through, um, and it's not going to be the same type of craze. So, I don't know. They're, they're sort of my thoughts. Well there. said. Okay, and another area that you touched on in the article that I think would be good to get your thoughts on now is this whole phenomenon of crypto traders that we saw, you know, these guys who just, you know, started trading yesterday and are trying to become professionals. What are these guys? Well, I mean, what were they doing before crypto? They were probably trading, you know, doing Forex fucking courses. 
um, because that was the craze or was it binaries? I don't know. There, there was binary options or some shit before crypto. So look, it's these guys are always going to exist. Um, you've got two parts of the problem there. You've got people who think that they should um, you know, make money for doing nothing or, or sitting at home and looking at charts. Um, and you know, it's been proven time and time again. Like there's arguments for and against this that charting and technical analysis actually works or whether it doesn't work. I mean, some of the greatest mathematicians out there will tell you that the shit's all random. Um, you can't get an edge anymore from TA, um, like all the quants and all of that sort of stuff, the real hedge funds, like the people like Ray Dalio and um, Jim Simmons and all of those guys who actually run proper hedge funds with proper quants and all that sort of stuff. Those guys have arped out all of the edge that you'll ever get from TA. Um, and, you know, they're, they're running complex mathematical statistical arbitrage models and all of that sort of stuff that actually consistently makes money, not some stupid chart patterns. And, and the argument, you know, on that side is that you could basically draw a chart pattern out of anything um, and convince yourself um, that it means something because we as humans all have cognitive biases that we, you know, that dictate, you know, how we operate in life. So, um, you know, I, I think it's pretty foolish to um, to think that, you know, you can become some sort of professional trader at home. Now, in saying that, there's obviously people out there who are trading who are making money, you know, and, you know, all credit to them. Um, but I think what they should be careful of is, you know, that there might be some sort of convergence around TA in crypto, at least at the moment, because it's such a nascent market. Um, and because of the high saturation of uh, retail noobs, you know, there may be, um, you know, technical analysis consensus points or, you know, shelling points on charts that actually function. Um, but over time, and this being a natively digital asset, I don't know how well that's going to um, work. And I don't think it's a good long-term strategy to, you know, really make money in the space. But again, I think a lot of these people are, studying crap that um, everybody else can access freely on the internet. That's not how you get an edge. Um, I can guarantee you that's not how the best hedge funds in the world work. They, they don't get an edge by, you know, studying a five-wave Elliott pattern and thinking that that's how you make money. <laughs> um, so, you know, it's, it's a hell of a lot more complex than it's made out to be. Um, and then, you know, the people who just want to make money easily are willing to pay, you know, more on traders who became traders last week, you know, selling courses <laughs> and they'll buy courses off these guys just to, um, to, you know, for the promise that they'll, you know, hopefully make money for free sitting at home trading on BitMEX. Yeah, precisely. And I think it it might be similar to the phenomenon, like even with things like poker, where it's really only like the very top few percent who actually consistently make a decent amount of money. And pretty much everyone below that is either, if they're lucky, they're trading water and otherwise they're losing. Yeah, absolutely, man. Like it's, it's just trading is such a zero sum game, man. And it's also one of those things like I do know, know a couple traders who, who genuinely are good, but guess what they do? They spend 12 hours in front of a fucking screen every day. Um, they study, they read, they they have a pulse on the market. They know what the fuck's going on and that's what they do. If you think you are going to make millions of dollars trading part-time because you you know 
paid for some douchebag's course, you know, cost you a thousand dollars and he taught you how to read an Elliott wave or what the hell a candlestick is and what an RSI or a stochastic is. If you think that's how you're going to make money in your part time, you're kidding yourself. Like it's, it's a joke. It's pissed me off since the days of all the guys running around shilling, you know, Forex courses um, to binary options courses to now crypto trading courses to God knows what else they're going to shill next. It's the same shit and it's the same kind of people that keep buying that stuff that, um, you know, my, my suggestion to all those people buying the stuff is go do something productive um, and you'll have a much better chance of making money long term. Or here's something even better is buy some Bitcoin, put it in a fucking ledger and forget about it. Come back to it 10 years from now, you'll have saved a hell of a lot of your hair from falling out. Um, and, you know, more than likely, it's Bitcoin being an asymmetric long-term bet, it's going to still be around and be worth a hell of a lot more. Um, and yeah, it, it, it's a much better strategy than all this other crap. Right, yeah. And so with that, we're seeing really over the last few years, well, now 10 years that Bitcoin has been around and you know, in the last few years, we've, we've seen sort of the good and the bad. And the bad could, you know, could be some of these people who are selling you this false promise of, you know, you can get rich quick and overnight experts, armchair experts. And then we've seen the good. Do you want to talk a little bit about some of that? Some of the good stuff. Mate, I would say that the thing like in the last year and a bit, we've seen like Andreas Antonopoulos has always been someone that I look up to. And, you know, I've always listened to his stuff. And I think he's one of the most important people in the entire space because he brings a voice of reason, a voice of trust, which is what you need when you're dealing with something that is effectively going to be a, a new form of money or a new form of social consensus. The, the predicate behind that or the predicate beneath that is this feeling of trust. And you build trust through communicating things that make rational fucking sense. And that's what, uh, uh, what's his name? Um, Andreas Antonopoulos does. What I, what I, what I've been, um, I guess really happy to see over the last year and a bit is you know people like Seyfedin Amos who came and wrote Bitcoin Standard and all of these sort of there's there's been a couple good new players that have come out and when I say new players I mean they've probably been involved for a little while but their work sort of come to the fore recently like Murad uh, Mahmudov um, his his stuff is brilliant yeah. as well um, you know th th there's more good stuff coming to the fore where there's people who actually understand why you know what, what the best chance or what the best opportunity for something like bitcoin is and they're starting to explain it and it seems like and i don't know if you've sensed this in the last probably couple months is that there seems to be a movement back toward bitcoin now from a lot of the community yeah that's definitely what i've seen i think we've seen as the well, a lot of the traders kind of explain that as, oh, well, look, the odds are crashing, but then, you know, Bitcoin dominance rises, which, I mean, I disagree with the use of the Bitcoin dominance index, but you can sort of colloquially understand that's what's happening. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it's, um, I think the good is that aside from, yeah, good new minds coming into it and sort of putting putting more resources out there and more content out there that makes sense. I mean, you know, your podcast is a great example. Um, you know, Jimmy Song's stuff is brilliant as well. So there's there's a lot of good content that really makes the space feel more trusted. So that's sort of coming. One thing as well is I did a presentation um, at, a, at a pitch event when I was talking about, you know, when we're raising some money for Amber. And 
I, I talked about you know why crypto and why now, and one of the things I talked about was how the the size of the marketplace or the size of the cohort of people getting involved in this space is growing uh, by an order of magnitude, you know, every couple of years. So it started off with, you know, the crypto anarchists and the, um, you know, all the freaks and geeks in the beginning. Then it's sort of the next cohort of people was the, you know, early libertarians, you know, your gold, silver people, your people, you know, understood, you know, money and all that sort of stuff. Then the next cohort was probably the, um, you know, the techies and the engineers, and that was sort of an order of magnitude larger than the previous one. And then the next cohort was sort of the cohort that just went past, which is the, you know, the speculators, the get-rich-quickers and, you know, the scammers and all that sort of shit, which, you know, despite all the bagging out I give them, they're all just part of the process anyway. Um, you know, and what I'm, what I'm envisioning is that the next cohort is going to be a lot larger and it's going to be far more sort of, uh, you know, young, savvy, millennial, retail sort of, driven because it's, you know, th- this is the Lindy effect in action, right? Is that each time a new cohort of people get involved, it's, um, it's making Bitcoin in particular, it's making its existence, um, you know, more, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, more substantive. Um, it's, it's a recursive, it's a, it's a positive recursive loop. And, you know, for me, seeing things like, you know, I mean, I'm obviously biased toward what I'm doing with Amber, but I mean, there's, there's a hell of a lot of cool new projects out there, companies that are trying to make, you know, the holding some Bitcoin or accessing the space easier and, um, you know, more seamless to do. And, and that's sort of like, I remember watching a video from Andreas a couple months ago and he sort of talked, people were like, oh, you know, what's next in blockchain? What's next in Bitcoin? And he said, look, I'd love to tell you that it's going to be some new AI drone powered super blockchain, blah, blah, blah. He goes, but it's not. He said, there's three things that are important. It's better on ramps, uh, you know, to allow people to get into the space easier better um, infrastructure, a wallet so that you can send, swap, receive, you can do things, you know, so, so it allows you to do things more seamlessly once you're inside. And he said better education. So when I, when I, and I remember watching that video and when I, that was sort of around the time when we, you know, it's first started building Amber and doing all that sort of stuff. And I said, holy shit, that's the three things that I want to nail with Amber. Better on-ramp, you know, better infrastructure, better wallet, better usage, better interface, better user experience. And I think those are the sort of things that I see coming up. And then the third thing that I want to sort of touch on as a major positive as well is lightning. And I think I mean, I'm doing a talk right now that I'm sort of starting to put together, which is going to be probably the highlight talk for 2019 for me. It's called uh, Blockchain is Dead, Long Live Lightning. And I think what we're going to see. And again, I'm I'm a massive lightning bull. I I think all of the complexity that we have in society today is going to be abstracted out into different layers that anchor back into the, um, the core Bitcoin network. So all of these crazy ideas and all the stupid shit that we saw sort of, uh, you know, last year and this year with ICOs and different blockchains and all that sort of stuff, Somewhere in those crazy, stupid concepts, there's actually some good ideas that do not require their own blockchain or their own token or any of that sort of shit that will be applications that are built with, you know, some level of complexity and abstraction 
either on lightning, through lightning, or something to do with fucking lightning that get the benefit of a um, immutable ledger, i.e. Bitcoin, through being able to be anchored to it. And I think this is where the future is going. And, you know, I was looking at a talk by um, Elizabeth Stark with um, with Suna from um, Token Daily, and that was like a really good talk, listening to her talking about what they're doing with Lightning and all that sort of stuff. And I, I think this is where the next major, major opportunity is in this space. And I think over the next five, ten years, we're going to see the next co- the next cohort or the next two, three cohorts of people being being lightning users and less you know core you know bitcoin chain users and i think that's sort of where um where i think you know the future is and i think that's one of the biggest positive things that are going to happen to bitcoin because what what it's going to do is it's going to create another network effect that makes bitcoin more important more secure more entrenched um and more central to this whole thing and um yeah, the the more I look into it, the more the more bullish and the more positive I get on uh, Bitcoin overall. Excellent insights, Alex. I very much agree. Uh, let's talk a little bit about what we can expect for the next, say, 2019 and 2020. Now, you mentioned you touched on this a little bit earlier around what might you know we've we've got this sort of phenomenon of people coming in waves as each different wave kind of comes in, they get so to speak mentally captured, as one of my prior guests, VJ uh, Boyapati, explains it. And you touched on this idea of maybe the savvy millennial. So what might drive some more Bitcoin investment, for example, the disillusioned millennials who can't afford a property here in Australia, would they then you know, go and buy Bitcoin? Look, I, I don't know whether the, the first thing they're going to jump at is Bitcoin. Um, you know, I think in down markets, people generally run to cash, right? Because when yeah. people are scared, you know, they sell shit, they run to cash. When people are euphoric, um, they buy shit and pay for it even though it's overpriced um, and then wonder why it you know, fell down in price later. So, you know, human psychology is a funny thing. But um, what what will drive them toward Bitcoin, I think, is this narrative around it being an asymmetric bet. I'm literally, before you called me, I was just writing an article um, that I'm calling Bezos and Bitcoin, which is, and the idea is what what's similar about Jeff Bezos and Bitcoin. And, and it's a bit of a, um, you know, clickbaity title, but the idea is that the internet was this fringe outlier asymmetric bet that we, we I don't think we could even quantify how much of a economic impact it's had on the world. Um, and, you know, Bitcoin is also this fringe outlier, you know, technology movement, communication medium, whatever you want to label it as. That um that we for the first time in history have a you know the ability to hold a piece of um, and I think the narrative for the millennials and the narrative or at least what I'm trying to push you know with Amber and with everything that I talk about is that Bitcoin is one of those things where it's either going to be worth nothing or it's going to be worth orders of magnitude more than it is now. It's not going to fall somewhere in the lukewarm middle. It's just That's just not what's going to happen with something like this um, because the only way for it to function is if it's worth trillions of dollars. Um, otherwise, it's just going to be worth zero. It's, it's just a, it's, a, it's an all or nothing game. And if I – there's um, – you know, I'm sure you've heard of Nassim Taleb, but um, his new book, Skin in the Game, where he talks about you know hidden asymmetries in daily life, he sort of he, – he made a – very interesting point in there, which is all of these, you know, new age moron fund managers who, you know, think they're fund managers who've been in the game for a couple of years and, you know, create all these complex, um, 
you know, fragile ways to try and get yields. He goes, if all of them just pissed off and you just take 85% of your money and just put it in treasuries so that it's safe and you're earning 2 or 3% and you take 15% and you buy out of the money options that have the potential to return 100 or 1,000x, he goes, that's your best portfolio structure. You don't need anything fancy. So if we look at Bitcoin with that lens and say, all right, Mr. Everyday Person, you know, millennial, whatever, you've lost you know, a bit of money or whatever. Here, hold most of your wealth in you know, cash for the time being. Um, but here is this interesting asset. It's fringe. It's out there. It's weird. Um, but, hey, it's got a chance not to double but to go up a thousand times. Take 5%, 10%, you know, 15%, whatever. It's an option on you know, a future that could be a hell of a lot better. Take an amount that you're willing to lose potentially, but that, you know, would make a difference if it, you know, went up a hundred times or a thousand times and allocate some capital there. And I think that narrative is what's going to drive a bit of the next wave of, um, wave of adoption into Bitcoin particularly. Now I could be wrong. This could be a real biased view from me because this is probably one of my cognitive biases, but it's definitely the narrative and the message that I want to push forward with everybody that I'm talking with, um, you know, moving forward. I, I honestly think that everybody should hold a little bit of Bitcoin. Simple as that. I, I don't think, I think it should be a non-negotiable. Everybody should hold some Bitcoin. Um, and, uh, you know, again, it's it's the whole reason why I built Amber is that it's going to make it easier for everybody to hold a little bit. So Yeah, no, that's great. Let's, let's now go into Amber. So, I mean, you were touching on it just now, but why did you start Amber? I mean that that was it. So the 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 story was really around. Um, I was trying to like over 2017. Like I, I bought a big chunk of uh, Bitcoin at the beginning of the year, and um, uh, you know I was very happy about that. Um, you know, especially when it hit three thousand, I sold fifty percent of it, <laughs> <laughs> thinking that just doubled my money. I'm a genius. <laughs> and, um, you know. So, the, the prudent ones didn't fare too well last year. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> underperformed during the crazy bull run. Yeah, correct. But um, you know, one of the things I was doing was trying to convince everyone, friends, family, and everyone to just go buy some. And you know, they're like, "Oh fuck!" You know, what's this? I take photos of myself and this and that and all this other bullshit. And everyone was just finding it too hard. And then the, they didn't know how much. Or you know, some of them bought it at five grand, and then it crashed back to three grand. And then they were fucking angry at me and all of this shit. And I was like, man. It's got to be an easier way to do this, and you know, looking at the the traditional markets, Acorns had obviously done it for um, traditional markets, like you know, being able to put your spare change into into a traditional managed fund. And I thought, man, why why has nobody done that in crypto? I said, you know, the the, the concept seems so simple. And as I delved a little bit deeper, I realized why nobody had done it in crypto is that, you know, the business model for Acorns is, you know, they're running a managed fund, so they charge a percentage on the fund and all this sort of stuff, which is all great. And that's how they make their money. Whereas can't really do that in the Bitcoin space without running a fund, but I didn't want to get, you know, go down the path of running a fund and then have to build a technology layer to, you know, acquire the capital effectively to run that fund. I thought, no, this is all bullshit. I said, I want to run this like an exchange. Now to run an exchange, you need to make a small percentage, right? So you're going to give me 10 bucks worth of dollars and I'm going to give you $10 worth of Bitcoin minus some, you know, one, two, three percent exchange fee, whatever. And then that's how I as an exchange subsist. So in order to make that type of um, business model functional, like the, 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 the math needs to stack up and where the whole thing broke down was 
the cost of um, processing transactions and aggregating the financial data from the banks in order to work out the spare change amounts and all of that was too high. Like if you wanted to do small transaction amounts and work out, you know, the roundups and do all that sort of stuff, by the time you moved two bucks, um, it ended up costing like 60 or 70 cents. It was ridiculous. So there's no way you could, you know, make money as a business. And if you just passed that cost on to the customer, it was a mess. So anyway, long story short was I got together with a couple um, tech guys from here in um, Brizzy, in Br- Brisbane, sorry. Uh, and they they built a piece of um, fintech software. It was, it was financial data aggregation and payments and all that sort of stuff rolled into one. And it was the the link, the missing link that would make something like Amber commercially viable, so that a I could run it as a business, and b we could provide that service into the market for people to use. And that's sort of where it all spawned. And my whole mo on that was that I wanted to just pure and simply make acquiring some Bitcoin as simple as possible. And the more I delved into it, the more I realized that dollar cost averaging is the most, and this is where, you know, when people, the the original message for Amber was, you know, making digital currencies easy, like making the purchase easy. And, And what I'm sort of evolving the message in Amber to now is making, you know, investing or dollar cost averaging easier because by far, Steve, like, I think, oh, sorry, Stefan. Um, I, I think the um, the only way that ninety nine point nine percent of people should invest is through dollar cost averaging. If they want to be involved in an asset class that they believe is going to increase in value over a period of time, they should definitely not be traders because that is a basically a zero sum game. Um, they should try not to be you know shorter term investors. They should just over time, purchase a small amount um, in you know periods of time that are you know equidistant apart, so they can take the emotion out of investing and trading, um, and slowly accumulate the asset that they want to hold. Whether that's Amazon, whether that's Netflix, whether that's Apple, whether that's the Nasdaq fund, uh, you know the index fund, whether that's Bitcoin or whatever the hell else they believe in, that's what all people should do over. A long enough period, and again, tying it back to um, Bitcoin itself is I see Bitcoin as the most asymmetric bet of our generation. And you know, if if somebody can dollar cost average in with money that's low risk, it's an absolute absolute no brainer. Like when I when I did my first uh, market studies, really, all I did was I walked up and down Queen Street Mall in um, Brisbane, and I just asked people, I would say, have you heard about Bitcoin? Uh, Yeah. Um, Do you have any? Uh, No, I don't. Uh, Do you know where to buy it from? Mm, Not really. Do you know how much to buy? Uh, No idea. Um, Do you know what to do with it? Uh, Not really. Can I pay for things with it? And then the final question I would ask is, would you swap your spare change for it daily and just accumulate it slowly? The answer, bar none, from everybody was, "Yeah, I'd do that. That's no problem." So, we're solving like we, with one app, we're solving multiple problems. We're solving the ability to acquire it. We're solving the 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 investment problem and the problem with human beings and you know inherently uh, uh, buying high and selling low, <laughs> which we we did backwards. Um, we're solving that, and we're solving the um the 
asymmetry problem by investing your spare change or by investing in you know, a small amount, whether it's 20, 50 bucks a week or 100 bucks a week. It's inherently not taking all of your money. It's not the 85% of the barbell. It's the 15% of the barbell, right? It's the option. So it's solving those three problems and it's setting it aside. And, you know, at Amber, we manage it. We All, all the funds are in cold storage. So there's no risk of hacks. There's no risk of losing the funds and all that sort of stuff. So it's, it's sitting there for you, nice and safe, um, through a mechanism that takes all the stupidity out of, you know, your potential actions. Um, and lets you accumulate into this new asset class automatically. It's like, I don't know. I, I just feel like it's the it's the it's the application that needs to be there to get this into more people's hands. Right. I see it as you know any hardcore Bitcoiners they know how to go and get it themselves. Oh, this yeah. is really more for the you know not so hardcore people who just want some exposure to Bitcoin, but they don't necessarily want to you know go and do all the work and do all the reading and research. They just want some small exposure. Could you talk a little bit about how the app works and kind of the mechanics of how you set up? Look, the, the app, I'll, I'll touch on two things quickly there. First is around the hardcore users. So originally when I first started building this, I would publicly say, okay, this is not for your existing Bitcoin people. The people who already have Bitcoin, know Bitcoin, know where to buy it, and they know what they're doing. And I go, they're, they're definitely not going to use Amber. We, we launched a beta version, which is sort of live to a couple people plus us in the office. Since I've downloaded it, I, I've been actively, um, you know, trying to buy odd amounts when I'm in the store just so I can accumulate more. Um, and I, I'm like about as hardcore Bitcoin as you can get. And what I found myself doing is, you know, using the app myself to accumulate because it just, you know, and again, I could be biased here being, you know, being the founder of this thing, but it feels like this is actually a cool tool for even the hardcore Bitcoiners because this is sort of the amount that they can, this is the the Bitcoin stash that they can build up without noticing um, whilst they go and, you know, obviously build up their primary stash elsewhere doing whatever else they're doing. But, uh, and that, that's just the funny thing that I've sort of encountered in the last couple of weeks as, you know, I've launched it amongst myself and a couple other friends who are also hardcore Bitcoiners. So, so it was a really interesting, you know, finding. But um, right. co- coming, yeah, coming back to how the app itself works is the first version. So we'll roll it out in versions, but effectively there's four functionalities that you'll have in the app. You'll have the what's called the roundups. And what that means is you'll download the app, you'll link a bank account to it um, through this fabric service. Um, Then every time you go and spend money in a shop, whether you go buy a coffee for $3.50 or you go buy a sandwich for $7.20 or whatever, at the end of the day, Amber sees uh, your transactions throughout the day. Um, They see the amounts and it just does some math. It rounds up each transaction to the nearest dollar. So that three dollar fifty coffee will, you know, will that, that's you know up to four dollars is fifty cents. Then the seven twenty is you know eighty cents there, and whatever other transaction throughout the day, it'll add those up together. Um, it'll say all right two dollars twenty six for the day. Um, it'll then direct debit two dollars twenty six from your bank account, and we'll do that across you know say ten thousand users. So that's twenty you know twenty two thousand six hundred dollars. We go then purchase that Bitcoin. Chuck it in cold storage, and then we attribute that Bitcoin across to um, everybody's uh, amber amber wallets, basically. Now, that's so I'm going to explain this a couple of levels. So that's that's sort of purchase modality number one. Purchase modality number two is um, recurring investments. So that's where you can say, look, I don't give a shit about roundups. I just want you know 
10 bucks, 20 bucks, 50 bucks, you know, a week or a day or a month just coming out of my account um, and buying Bitcoin at whatever price it is, doesn't matter. So that's a recurring investment that you set up. You don't really need to link your bank account to it. You can just set that up as a direct debit. Um, or should you prefer to link your bank account, you know, the service that we use, Fabric, is um, uses smart direct debit. So it'll only debit your account if you've got enough money in there. So avoid dishonors and all that sort of stuff. But um, effectively, that's just another, that's like an automation strategy. Then there's this thing called the boost function. And what that allows you to do is that allows you to sort of uh, accelerate that savings process. So you can add a dollar, $2 or a $5 boost. Um, and that basically means to every transaction. So if we go back to that coffee transaction, you, you spend $3.50, we'll round it up to 50 cents. But if you've also got a dollar boost, it'll add a dollar to that. So that means for that transaction, we you know we calculate dollar fifty, then the sandwich seven twenty. We'll round it up to a dollar plus add a dollar to that, so that's a dollar eighty. So it's a way for you to sort of fast track the um, accumulation. Yeah, yeah, the accumulation. And then number four will be just one off top ups, and that's literally just like an exchange buy sell. So you know you'll just be able to go in there, um, click buy, and the fact that you know uh, Amber is connected to your bank via Fabric, um, you know we can debit the account straight away. So it'll be, it'll actually be one of the fastest ways to buy crypto. Um, so longer term, I, I really want to put some focus into being able, you know, to allow people to, you know, perform that function as, um, easy as possible. So we want to introduce some, you know, voice activation stuff where you'll be able to say, Hey, Amber, um, what's the price of Bitcoin? Hey, Amber, um, you know, if the price is under this much, you know, can you please buy some? Yeah, so we'll, we'll introduce some cool features like that longer term, but you know, that's sort of, I guess, outside of the scope of this initial conversation, but that's sort of the feature set in terms of accumulation. Then when we talk about the wallet layer and things like that, the, the first version, the early version of um, Amber will be pretty pretty strict in the sense that we're going to manage the custodianship for people because the, the market, again, that we're after is people that aren't worried about private keys and seeds and don't know what the fuck any of that stuff means. Um, and to be honest, even if they did, uh, custodianship isn't their forte. Um, so because we are a you know effectively a buy side exchange we have the luxury of being able to allocate 100% of the funds into cold storage so we we have different levels of cold storage we have like deep deep cold storage which has you know sharded private keys across the country and all that sort of stuff and that's where we hold 80% of our funds that's never touched um, we have 15% of the cold storage which is in you know local vaults um, and then 5% of it sits on a ledger um, which is still cold stored um, but we have the ability to access it should customers wish to you know withdraw or sell you know perform that sort of function but um, again that first version of amber is about more about accumulating in a subsequent version which will I don't know whether it'll be ready for Q1 or Q2 next year is we're going to release a, a more amber a unique amber wallet so that each user of amber can actually the, the Bitcoin that they've accumulated, they'll be able to send, receive, and actually have a, a hosted type wallet functionality. And then longer term, um, which will probably be later half of next year, we'll build what's called the Amber Vault. And the Amber Vault will allow people to move the crypto from their just normal Amber wallet to their own Amber effectively wallet, which is their own custody solution, i.e. their own private key, their own seed and all that sort of stuff. Um, which we anticipate only a small proportion of customers are really going to use because you know I don't see mass adoption from the next cohort of users coming from people that want to hold it for you know the same reasons as a lot of us early people want to hold it for. Right, I see. That, so yeah. yeah, go on. 
No, I was just going to say that that's sort of the, the key trajectory between those two things. And, and and the wallet functionality for me opens the door for us to then move into how we're going to build sort of the lightning functionality into it long term, where we're going to look at opening up reverse opening channels for people um, so that way they have a pre-funded lightning wallet um, in their hand through Amber and the ability to um, – you know, we'll, we'll manage those channels from our end. And so there's a lot of things that I want to do, particularly in Lightning space longer term. Um, again, I don't, it's on the roadmap for later. I don't exactly know how it looks at the moment, but um, it's the um, the trajectory within, through which I want to take um, Amber. Yeah, definitely interesting, uh, that idea of having the same thing that you buy it on, then also help you get on to Lightning. A hundred percent, yeah. That, that's sort of my... Um, I don't, I'm going to say this and probably get shot somewhere, but that's my Trojan horse, right? Is that I want to get, if, if I can help 100,000 people buy Bitcoin and then I can, you know, reverse engineer their access to Lightning and make it, you know, such that they don't have to do anything for it, I've put 100,000 people onto Lightning. And that's sort of my, you know, one of my, I'm not going to call it my the end game, but that is one of the big drivers for me is because that's going to then start to activate that lightning network, which is what I think we need to do for Bitcoin long term. Yeah, that's fantastic. And I know in Brisbane, there's a whole scene there and there's the whole thing around Brisbane Airport accepting Bitcoin and there's uh, that town, I forgot the name, is it 17? I forgot the name of it. Um, uh, yeah, it's... um, I forgot it, but yeah, basically there's a town in uh, Queensland where pretty much every vendor takes Bitcoin. So that'll yeah. be cool to see. It, it will be amazing to see. Exactly. But um, I mean, look, m- merchant, the, the whole merchant thing, like I, I don't want to go down on a tangent here, but I think that that's important, but it's still early days on that. So, and this is why like p- part of me, you know, wants to jump on top of, you know, lightning and get involved and start, you know, allowing people to process transactions, of lightning and do all that sort of stuff. But I always sort of temper that and pull myself back and say, fuck, hold on, Alex. We still have not got a poofteenth of a percent of people in the world actually holding the shit. So first things first, let's get some people holding some Bitcoin and then we'll worry about spending transactions, exchange and lightning and all that sort of shit later. But let's first get people into the damn thing. So, And and that's why, you know, I always need to remain strict on my, um, you know, goal and focus, which is let's just make this the easiest on-ramp in the world for anybody to buy Bitcoin and do it inside, you know, under under 60 seconds from first downloading the app to linking their account to being able to purchase. We want to do that in under 60 seconds. Yeah, fantastic. I think you've got to walk before you run. So that makes a lot of sense to me. Look, we're coming close to the hour now, so maybe um, we'll just start wrapping up. If you've got any closing thoughts, Alex, and also just tell the listeners, or at least the Australian-based ones, how they can find Amber and how they can get in touch with you. Sure, man. Well, I'll start with the Amber piece there, and then I'll add some closing thoughts. So with Amber, it's, um, you know, dot-coms have all been taken and everyone's squatting them. <laughs> so. You need to you need to look up uh, get amber so g e t amber dot i o. Um, hopefully, at some stage, I'll be able to get amber dot i o um, or get amber dot com. But um, that's a work in progress. Um, otherwise, you'll be able to find us um, on Facebook. I think it's get amber dot i o um, on Facebook. We're on Twitter, Amber Exchange. Not not really too big on Twitter, um, but that that's you know an area that we'll sort of build up. Um, but yeah, if, if you jump on the website, that's obviously the easiest place to find us. 
uh, as at the date of this recording, we are still in a private type beta, um, looking to have a more public beta out in July. Sorry, not in Jesus Christ, not July, January. <laughs> um, so that's sort of around the corner that we'll be working hard on that from next week on. Um, so that's how people can find out about Amber. I, I do a lot of writing on Hacker Noon and Medium, and I'm always talking about dollar cost averaging and you know asymmetric bets and outliers and you know why Bitcoin and all that sort of stuff. And I always sort of loop in what we're doing with Amber there. So there's definitely information people can find out there. Um, and then for me, I mean, closing thoughts. Look, Stefan, I think there's I, I'm like I said before, I'm really optimistic about people in the space coming around and we're all sort of converging back toward Bitcoin. Um, I think next year's, or sorry, this year now is going to be an incredible year for Bitcoin, for Lightning, for all of that sort of stuff to build out. Um, you know, I'm in two minds about the whole ICO and altcoin thing. I don't think we're going to have another ICO type craze, but I definitely think we're going to have another altcoin boom um, purely because you know, the, the speculators aren't all gone yet and we're, we're likely to have another wave of um, stupidity, but I don't know if it'll happen in the same way as last time. I think it'll be more sort of altcoin, cheap coin driven than it will be um, uh, ICO stuff. So people, you know, confusing the fact that one Bitcoin is worth five grand versus, you know, one Ripple is worth 20 cents and hey, maybe Ripple will get to five grand. <laughs> you know, so I think that's sort of, you know, th that that's just going to be inevitable. So I think we're going to have an interesting 2019. I don't think... You know, we've hit the bottom in terms of price yet. I still think we've got quite a way to go. Um, but at the same time, I think from now and over the next six to 12 months is the best time to start dollar cost averaging. And whether people use an application like Amber or whether they're disciplined enough to do it themselves, um, I think that's one of the hardest bits is, you know, something like Amber removes the need for you to have to discipline yourself to do it. It just automatically accumulates the shit for you. So, um, but if you are disciplined enough to it, I think now's the time to slowly start purchasing Bitcoin and every time it gets a little bit lower, keep going um, because I think, it, as I said, it's the best asymmetric bet uh, of our generation. And yeah, I think we need to see more content like this, more conversations like this, um, more podcasts like yours um, and more conversation around what makes um, sense in this space and yeah, man, that's what I'm. That's sort of what I'm looking forward to in the year ahead and in the years ahead, and definitely looking forward to doing you know another one of these catch ups, maybe six or twelve months from now to see how things have actually evolved. Yeah, sure, definitely. All right. Um, look, I think that's a great way to finish it off. I think it's it's a message of dollar cost averaging. And uh, look, thanks very much for the chat and thanks for coming on, Alex. Really appreciate it, Stefan. Thanks, buddy. Check out the show notes for this episode on my website, stefanlevera.com. If you enjoyed it, remember to subscribe so you don't miss out on the next episode and please share the podcast with your friends. You can also follow me on Twitter. My handle is at Stefan Levera. Thanks for listening.